Ezekiel chapter number 22. Now, as a preacher, when I look at sermons, you know, I look at other people's sermons. I won't lie about that. But, you know, you look through the sermons and you've gone through Father's Days in the past. And, you know, there, there seems to be a pattern to where on Mother's Day we honor the mothers. You know, we stand up, we give them flowers. And then when Father's Day rolls around, the preacher will beat up on the fathers. <laughs> and sometimes it's warranted. I mean, sometimes in a lot of cases nowadays, the father is either neglected or avoided his responsibility in the role. But I figure if you're here in church, you're wanting to do right by God and you're wanting to follow him and you're wanting to be a man that will stand in the gap. And that's what I'm going to preach on this morning is standing in the gap. If you look at verse number 30, this is our key verse here. Verse number 30. And the Bible says and. God saying through Ezekiel, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Let's pray. Amen. So we want to get the context when we're looking at the Bible, but he said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap. And those are the two things that we're going to look up this morning, look at this morning. He said that I should not destroy it for I found none. God had reached the end of his of his uh, tolerance of Israel's sin. God had reached a point where he was ready to destroy Israel. And he was using Ezekiel to prophesy to him to tell them this is what God was going to do. And when you look at the situation here in Jerusalem, and this is the city that's talked about in this verse, it starts over, it starts over in chapter, uh, verse number one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, now, son of, Thou son of man, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the bloody city? Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. And he begins to list out their sins. When you get to verse number 23, and I think this is a little closer to where we're talking about today, we see some of the sins, not only of the city, but of the people in that city. He says in verse number 25, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, say unto her, Thou art the land that is not cleansed, nor reigned upon in the day of indignation. And number one, the, the prophets had failed the city of Jerusalem. He says here in verse 25, there is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls, they have taken the treasure and precious things, and they have made her many widows in the midst thereof. There was a tendency, and we're going to look at a verse here, but there was a tendency to tell the people what they wanted to hear. That sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? People have the itching ears. They, they want to hear a certain thing. They want to go to church and they want to be told a certain thing. And they want to be told how to make their life better. And they want positive things. They don't want to be told about sin. They don't want to be told about what they're doing wrong. But it was something that was needful. God needed somebody to let them know. Um, there's a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a Lion, ravening the prey, and they have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. And then look over in verse number 28. It says, And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hath not spoken. 
So they were telling the people things that God hadn't spoken, but they're saying, well, you know, God's a loving God, and everything's okay with what you're doing. Everything's fine with what you're doing. And, you know, that'll get people to pay money. That'll get people to take care of them. And everything was about getting money from the people. Um, Look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 13, which is just a few chapters over. When he talks about that untempered mortar, this was a verse that I'd heard used one time in talking about daubing the walls with untempered mortar. You know, the mortar is what holds things together. When I'm, when I'm putting a sermon together, I'll tell Didi I got the bricks, but I don't have the mortar. And the mortar comes to me in the morning. My mind's a little clear, and that's what puts the sermon together. When you're building a wall and you got the bricks, you can just lay them all up there, but if a wind comes, it'll knock it over. The mortar is what holds it together. And he's saying they're using untempered mortar. So this wall that they're building is not going to stand. It's not going to hold. And uh, Ezekiel chapter 13, he says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel that prophesy, and say unto them that prophesy out of their own hearts, hear ye the word of the Lord. He's having Ezekiel talk to the prophets, tell the prophets that are prophesying out of their own hearts. They're just making it up. In verse number three, thus saith the Lord God, woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, thy prophets are like the foxes in the deserts. You have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. So the prophets were failing the city of Jerusalem. In verse number six, they have seen vanity and lying divination, saying, the Lord saith, and the Lord hath not sent them. And they have made others to hope that they would confirm the word. And look over at verse number 10. Because even they have seduced my people, saying, peace. And there was no peace. And one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. So the, the prophets weren't willing to tell the truth about God's word. And then the next thing that we see, you go back to chapter 22 and look at verse number 26. Not only were the prophets failing the city of Jerusalem, but the priests were failing. It said, her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. And this is the key part of that. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and clean and have hid their eyes from my Sabbath, and I am profaned among them. When the priests, when the people that represent God to the people have failed, when they begin to mix the holy and the unholy things, people see God as an unholy thing. And they were, they were profaning the temple. They, were, they had mixed in idols. They had mixed in other gods. They had mixed in all forms of sin. You look back at 1 Samuel, uh, Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were, they were laying at the gate with the women. You can only imagine that carrying forward and priests that were corrupt. So the prophets were failing to the people and the priests were failing the people. The Bible says, uh, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God over in Romans. It said, how shall they hear without a preacher? 
And uh, if, if somebody's not willing to stand up and point out someone's sin, how can they know that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Amen. Withholding it. And if in your own life you're trying to witness to somebody and you've got sin in your own life, it's kind of hard to tell them how sin is bad, isn't it? And that's the priest mixing the clean and the unclean. And it says, uh, yeah, so verse number 10, there was a corruption of the priests. And look at uh, verse number 27. And he's talking to the princes. He's talking about the princes. But in my mind, I could see the politicians here. So not only the prophets and the priests, but the politicians. I look up at uh, Congress right now. I don't see no, any difference between the two parties. I, I, see, I see corruptness wherever I look. You might see it different. You might see everything just going right, no greed, no anything. But here in uh, 27, he says, Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. So this was a city that was being failed by the prophets and being failed by the priests and being failed by the princes. In verse 28, uh, we read that. Look at verse 29. And things start at the top and they kind of roll downhill from there, don't they? If your prophets who are supposed to be telling you, uh, identifying sin, and talent pointing it out to you. If the priests who are, who are adopting sin into their lives and corrupting it, and if the princes, the people who are supposed to make things better for you, or the people that are supposed to help you make decisions for the people turn against, you get down to the people. Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And that's the situation we find ourselves here in Jerusalem. When we look at Jerusalem, this was the sin that was going on. This was the failure of all the people. And God says in the midst of all of this, he sought for a man among them, verse number 30, that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. There's a principle in the Bible in uh, Dr. Tony Evans and one of his notes in his study Bible, he said it's the principle of representation. God looks for a representative to stand before him and, and tell the people and to stand in the gap between him and the people and their sin and to point out their sin, but be willing also to intercede on their behalf. And when we look in the Bible, when we look in the Old Testament, we see, uh, we see a few men that were willing to stand in the gap now, as far as fathers today, you might not be able to stand between God and the nation, but you can intercede on behalf of the nation. You can pray. Well, one thing you can really do is intercede on behalf of your family, intercede, intercede on behalf of your church, intercede on behalf of your neighborhood. There, there may be a way that God can use you. And, you know, I thought about this, and as a man, you know, the idea of going to fight for your family you could do that. I know when I was 18 years old and I joined the Navy, I was willing to fight for my family. I remember being up at Magic Mountain and I was wearing my uniform and I'm not sure why to this day. They said we had to, but, you know, what were they going to do? But uh, 
I'm there at Magic Mountain with my friend, and we're in our uniform standing in line, and this little girl was there, and, and the mother, her mother said, just go ahead and ask him. And uh, I, I looked down at her, and she looked up at me, and little girl, she couldn't have been maybe five, six years old, and she, she looked up at me, and she said, would you fight for me? I don't know what her mom had told her, you know, but maybe she explained what, the, what we were, being in the Navy, and that we were willing to fight for our country. But she looked up and she said, would you fight for me? And I don't know why the words just, you know, kind of came to me. I looked down and I said, honey, I'd die for you. You know, we, we think of going to war or something like that as men. It's like sign me up. It's protecting my family back home. I'm willing to do it. But you know something is harder to do? It's harder to get on your knees and say, God, do it. But God was looking for somebody to stand in the gap. He wasn't looking for somebody to take down the politicians and the princes and the prophets. He wasn't looking for somebody to go in there and clean house and reform everything. He was looking for somebody to get on his knees before them and pray to God or maybe to tell them where they, where they stood by making up the hedges and standing in the gap. So in the Old Testament, we see Moses, who was willing to stand in the gap for the people around him. After Moses came down from the mountain, and Aaron, one of my favorite lines in the Bible, Aaron gathered up all the gold from everybody, and, they, and Moses came down, and there was a noise of war, and they were all dancing. They were worshiping a calf that Aaron had made. And he said, these be the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And he was giving the calf credit for what God had done. And when Moses came down and God was angry, God was ready to destroy them. They had just got out of Egypt and God was ready to destroy them. I've said it several times, if God and Moses were angry at the same time, there wouldn't be any Israelites. But over in Exodus chapter 32, I'll read it to you. Verses 10 to 14 says, God says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them. And that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. God's saying, Moses, I'll make you a great nation. Forget all these other people. Let me destroy them. They've already worshipped other gods. We hadn't even gotten out of Egypt hardly. And they're already giving other gods credit. In verse 11, And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And I don't think that God was trying to twist God, uh, Moses was trying to twist God's arm because Moses was just as mad at him. Moses was the one that, that ground down the idols into powder and make them drink the water and, and gold mixed together. He says, uh, verse number 12, Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. He said, Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and sayest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Moses was willing to stand in the gap for the people. Moses spoke with God, and God turned back from his wrath. As I, 
I try to find that fine balance between politics and preaching, but when we're looking at America today, we're seeing a country under attack. If you think everything's going all right here in America today, you haven't been watching the news. You haven't been seeing what's going on. This country is under attack. The churches will be under attack soon. And I'm not advocating for fighting, but I'm advocating we need some men to stand in the gap. I've I've asked myself, it's like in this environment, Keith, and this is where I just get straight up with you, because we've been looking at the church and we've been praying about the church, and I've asked myself over and over, it's like, okay, so now you're going to straighten things up, Keith. Now you're going to draw closer to God. You're going to repent and do what God wants you to do. And it's like, what do you expect to happen in this environment? You've had all this time, things could have changed. And you want to you just say, well, you know, I, I missed my chance. I missed my opportunity. But you know what? In the days of Jerusalem, in the days of Moses, in the days of Noah, God needed somebody to stand in the gap. That doesn't mean that I'm some great person there, that God's going to make me some great person. Don't think that I've got a Napoleon complex. But what I've realized is, All I can do is get on my knees and pray to God and trust him step by step, day by day. And fathers, that's what you need to do. It doesn't matter what went on in your life before. It doesn't, it matters, but it's never too late to turn back to the Lord. It's never too late to stand in the gap and make up the hedge. It's a matter of what you do tomorrow, today, tomorrow, the day after. And the good that you did in the past isn't going to matter. What matters is what you do for the Lord today. We're willing to go and fight and battle, but are you willing to let the Lord fight your battles? I know I'm backing up, but it's God that does the fighting. It's by his might, by his power, by his spirit that things happen, that we're able to do things. But God needs some intercessors. He needs someone to stand in the gap. We've got a country that's caught up in sin Just as Moses was caught up in sin, what, probably 40 days out of Egypt? But God, uh, Moses, maybe longer, but God, Moses had been up on the mountain with God all that time. And he comes down with the commandments and they've already broken them. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. In Psalm 106, 23, it says, Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach, to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. And then there's Abraham. Abraham prayed for his family. Abraham is there. He's talking to the pre-incarnate Jesus. The angels have come to visit him. His nephew Lot left. They had parted ways uh, earlier. I think it was... uh, Genesis chapter 12, they had parted ways and Lot had pitched his tent toward Sodom. One of my favorite phrases. He pitched his tent toward Sodom. And then after a while, Lot ends up a little closer to Sodom. And next thing you know, he's sitting at the gate of Sodom. And uh, when he's sitting at the gate, he is wrapped up in the affairs of the city. And there he is in the city of Sodom. And we know about the sin that was going on there. And uh, Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 tells us, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, pride goeth before the fall, a haughty spirit before destruction. And uh, 
their sin was pride. They were filled with pride. They, when you're proud, you don't need God. When you're proud, you can do it all on your own. You don't need, it. You don't need God at all. The fullness of bread. When things are going well, you don't need God. And this was part of Sodom's sin. They didn't need God for anything, not for provision, not for prayer, not for anything. And abundance of idleness was in her hand and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And, uh, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. So Lot was in this city, and he was wrapped up in it. And over in Genesis chapter number 18, if you want to look at it, Genesis chapter number 18, I'll read it. (laughs) We were just looking at this in Sunday school, but in uh, verse number 16, and the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, And he's telling Abraham, he says, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham yet stood before the Lord. Abraham knows what's about to happen. He knows that he's going to find wickedness there. He knows what kind of horrors God is going to find there, what kind of sin and Abraham knows about his family lot that's dwelling there in that city. And Abraham, in a sense, is praying to God, but he's talking to the Lord there. And this is one of those conversations that you read, and you know that he's talking to God, and you just feel like Abraham's walking on eggshells with God. Because he begins to ask him, he says, verse number 23, And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou destroy, also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he's thinking about Lot. You know what happens when a nation turns wicked? The righteous suffer too. Just because you're following God doesn't mean there isn't going to be suffering. When communism takes over, the Christians suffer more than anybody. So praying for your nation is not not off the template, off the menu. It's not off the menu. It's something that you should be doing. We should be praying for our leaders. But here Abraham is asking God, he said, wilt thou destroy the righteous with the wicked? He says, peradventure, there be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? Now, Abraham's talking to the Lord, and he knows what kind of ground he stands on, but he just can't stand to let it go. And, you know, when you're praying for family, when you're praying for for someone that's caught up in sin. They've, they've gotten away from God or maybe they don't know God. There's a thing in the Bible called importunity. It's not a word that we use today. But when you're addressing prayers to God, let me tell you something. It's not just something, Lord, just please take care of him. And then you go on. 
So many times in a weak prayer life, that's what you want to do, right? Well, I prayed about it. I asked God to, I asked God to be there for him. I asked God to save him. I asked God to take care of him. And then you go on about your day. But Abraham, Abraham gets a hold of God and he says, if there's 50. And then he takes it down a little further. And he said, verse 25, that be far from me from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee, shall not the judge of all earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the place for their sakes. And then that wasn't enough for Abraham, because he's like, well, there might not be fifty. And he goes on to pray in verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, now I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five and fifty righteous. And uh, wilt thou destroy the city for lack of five? So if there's 45, Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Verse 29, and, and God says he won't. He said, peradventure, there should be 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And he said unto him, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak, peradventure, shall there be 30 found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, now I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure, there should be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 20's sake. And he gets all the way down to 10. <coughs> And he said, oh, let, let the, not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet, but this once peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. Well, in the next chapter, Sodom and Gomorrah got wasted with fire and brimstone. So even though there weren't ten righteous in there, God sent his angels to pull a lot out, I'd say by the ear, but to pull a lot out of that city it was so simple that the men wanted to rape the angels <laughs> that had come into the city. And Lot was so mixed up in it that he offered his daughters instead. Now, that's a bad story, but Abraham praying for Lot, Abraham praying for that city, and his intervention, those angels brought Lot out. There's hope for your children, man. Don't be afraid to pray for your children, to pray for your family. You know, there's, there's a lot of water under the bridge in life. But it's what you do now. Are you willing to turn to God now? Are you willing to make up the hedge? Are you willing to stand in the gap for your family? So there's the ministry of the intercessor. And that was Abraham and that was Moses. They interceded on the behalf of their people and on the behalf of their family. And then there's the ministry of the hedge builder. The hedge builder is to not only live by the word of God, but be willing to proclaim it. Jonah was a reluctant hedge builder. You remember the prophets wouldn't tell the people what God wanted them to hear. They told the people what, he, what they wanted to hear. But Jonah was a reluctant hedge builder. God called him to go to the country of Syria. And in Syria, they were known for their wickedness, for their evil, and for their just downright meanness in the way, in the way they tortured captives, in the way that they took slaves, and what they did to people. These were people that were not liked by Jonah. 
because he'd known what had happened to his people. And Jonah starts out in, uh, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, in verse 2, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, God's declaring judgment on that city. You know, in our lives, we see people that do things, and it's, it's hard it's hard sometimes. It's a lot easier to say, you know, God's going to get you one. The judgment is coming than it is to go up and witness to somebody when you know they've done something horrible. So Jonah was a reluctant hedge builder. Verse number three, right after God tells him to go to Nineveh, but Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. Jonah ran. A lot of preachers running when God calls them. Probably in my own life, there's been some running. I say probably, that's probably half a lie. But there's people that have run from God when God's called them. Men that wouldn't make up the hedge. And Jonah was a reluctant prophet. But God got a hold of him. God sent him through some trials. God put him in the belly of the well. God sent a storm his way. And you know, man, I could get caught up preaching on Jonah. But in the midst of that storm, the ones who were seeking God weren't Jonah. He was asleep down in the bottom. He He was getting away from God. He was getting away from God's presence. He was getting away from God's call. But the, the sailors on the ship were crying out. And they said, call out to your God. What are you doing, thou sleeper? Call out to your God that he may save us. Because they'd known, they'd talked to him. A ship is a long ride. And they sat there and he said, yeah, I'm running from God. You know, a preacher will do that. He'll admit it. God called me to preach, but I'm running. And they said, awake, thou sleeper. Call out to your God. Jonah said, this is because of me. And they didn't want it. He said, how can we stop this? He said, throw me over the side. And they didn't want to do it. They didn't want his blood on his hand. But he said, that's the only way. They threw him over the side and God sent the well to swallow him. And there in that well, I think he died at some point. But he, God, when he turned around, when he changed, when he repented from having run from God, that, that well spit him out up on the shore. And you know what? He was in Syria. And God said, arise, go to Nineveh. He gave him the same call that he'd had before. Jonah was a reluctant edge builder. But Jonah goes in after being swallowed by the fish in, verse number, in chapter number 3, verse 1. He says, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He must have known in his heart. It's like, Lord, overthrow it. Take them. I know what these people have done. But he gets up there and he cries, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And verse number five, so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them, even to the least of them. And when you get to Jonah chapter number four, you know, they all repented. Even the animals were in sackcloth and ashes because they said it may be that the Lord will repent of what he's going to do. 
they turned at God's word. And he prayed unto the Lord, verse, uh, chapter number four. He said, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying? And when I was yet in my country, therefore I fled unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of evil. I'm grateful for a merciful God, amen. But, but Jonah wanted God not to be merciful to his enemies. And sometimes he says, uh, and repentest thee of the evil. So sometimes we'd like to see God's judgment. It's hard to pray for those we don't like, those that deserve God's judgment. And sometimes it's even harder to see them get saved. There was a woman back in the late 70s, early 80s. She, her name was Carla Faye Tucker. And it happened here in Texas, in Houston, Texas. And she was high on drugs and she didn't know God, but they had axe murdered some people they knew. They had broken into their house or broken into their apartment and she had killed somebody with an axe, put it through his head. And you look at that and you say, there's an evil woman. She deserves whatever God's got for her. And she did deserve justice. There needed to be justice in that situation. But something happened to Carla when she was in prison. She was the first woman to be executed in the U.S. since 1984. She was an accomplice to a brutal axe murder of two people in the early 80s. And soon after being in prison, she took a Bible from the prison ministry program and read it in her cell. She later recalled, I didn't know what I was reading. Before I knew it, I was in the middle of my cell on my floor on my knees, and I was just asking God to forgive me. She became a Christian in October 1983, and she later married her prison minister, the Reverend Dana Lane Brown, and held her Christian wedding ceremony inside the prison. In one of the last interviews she had, she gave glory to Jesus Christ in changing her life. On February 3, 1998, she was executed. Some of her last words were as follows. I would like to say to all of the family of the victims that I am so sorry. I hope God will give you the peace with this. Everybody has been so good to me. I love you all very much. I'm going to be face to face with Jesus now. I love you all very much. I will see you all when you get there. I will wait for you. As the lethal chemicals were being administered, she was praising Jesus Christ. That's a tough thing to find, to see somebody deserving of the justice. You would think God's wrath. She was an axe murderer. She took them out while they were asleep for her to get saved. But God has mercy enough for her as she had mercy enough for you and your sins that you committed. Blessed, the Bible says in Luke 6, 28, Jesus said, Bless them that curse you and pray for them which despitefully use you. The more evil that I see nowadays, the more it seems hard to pray for them. But that's what God commands. I've even mentioned it sometimes online, and you ought to see the vitriol you get. No, these people did this, and they deserve that. And I've got my line, too, that I come up against. When I see somebody that knows that did something in a particular area... I have a line, 
And, uh, and that's somebody that messes with kids. I have a line. But uh, I read that verse, and it's like, Lord, I just want to run off to Tarshish. We've got to be willing to be a witness and to be a testimony. Because who knows that people that have done things, who knows that God may be working in their life, God may be bringing them to him. That's a hard thing to say now. I'll add this, it doesn't mean that you let them in the children's ministry. Amen? So the power of an intercessor. Oh, in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, Paul says, I exhort thee, therefore, that first of all, all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now listen to this, chapter, verse number two, it says, For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. You know, when the country's run well run, or when this country's been well run, the churches have rest. But when there's evil at the top, the churches don't have rest. We need to pray, we need to intercede on behalf of the country, we need to intercede, we need to pray for the leaders. God will do what he does, but God may get a hold of someone. We don't know what's going to happen, but be willing to be an intercessor. Be willing to pray for those in authority that we could have a peaceful life. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13 to 14, it says, In the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Now there's another tough one. You say a woman that's getting beaten. I'm not going to tell a woman that's getting beaten by her husband to stay with him, but if God moves on her heart, don't blame her. If, she, if she's praying for her husband, it doesn't mean that he's saved and he's going to heaven, but what it means is, He's there in the presence of God. There is a chance that she will come to the Lord or that he will come to the Lord, either circumstance. And that's between them and the Lord, whether they stay. He said, if, he be, if she be pleased to dwell with him, if she's still willing to be there, don't falter for it. All the girlfriends get her, girl, you need to get out of that situation. I don't want to go too deep into that. I just, it just occurs to me and I say it sometimes. But... When your circumstance at work, you say, well, it's just a godless environment that I work in. Well, if it's a godless environment and, and you're working there, then are you godless? Because your presence alone is the injection of God into that environment. How are, how are you, how close are you walking to the Lord that God can use you, that God can work around you in that environment? And then there's the power of an intercessor. Because as much as we can look at the country or as much as we can look at Jerusalem and see the sin in it, as much as we can look at the Israelites and see them worshiping another God when it was the great I am that brought them out of Egypt and not those golden calves, as much as we can look at Syria, we see the change that took place there. And as much as we can look at Sodom and see the judgment that took place there, each and every person here has committed sin. 
Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God gave his commandments. He listed them out. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And you can go down and check them off and say, no, no, oh, steal. What about when you were a kid and you wanted that pencil from your neighbor? What about something you shoplifted just for fun? What about, hey, I could go on. What about, what about? Well, the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then over in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but, now let's stop right there. If you're not a sinner, there's no need for you to come to God. If you're, if you're clean in your own heart and you're proud of what you've done your whole life, there's no need for you to come to God because God wants sinners. You'll still be condemned. There's that but there. Many people don't get past the but. The wages of sin is death. They say, well, I'm too good. I, I, you know, my good's going to outweigh my bad. I'm not really that bad of a sinner. Well, then you're just right there. You're at the wages of sin is death. You've committed sin. There's death on your doorstep. And pride will keep them from crossing over that butt inside the verse. But if pride doesn't get in the way, if you're willing to go across that butt, if you're willing to go over to the other side, it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can look at those cities and say the sin was great in those cities, but they're sinning in your own life. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll stay on the other side. The wages of sin is death. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're willing to admit that you're a sinner, if you're willing to accept the payment that Jesus paid on that cross, that penalty was paid for you. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Carla Faye Tucker accepted that gift. There's a lot of people that hadn't been an axe murderer in their life, but they won't admit to sin. They won't accept that gift of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 5, 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, he tells us to pray for his enemies, but he doesn't do that lightly. When he, when he was on the cross, he prayed for those that were beaten. He said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He knew their hearts. And when he saw you in your sin, he said, I still died for you. I still went to the cross for you. Over in John chapter 17, Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's praying. He says, I pray for them. Talking about his disciples, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are mine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. He said, and I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through the mind, thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. 
Jesus was interceding on the behalf of his disciples, praying to the Lord for them. He said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Talking about Judas. He says, and now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them my word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And that's a nice prayer for his disciples. He knew the trials that they were going to be going through. He knew the things that they were going to suffer. He knew He knew the times of conflict that were going to be in their life. And Jesus was praying for them that God would keep them. And that's good for his disciples, right? In verse 19, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. In verse 20, he said, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. When you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, know that he's praying for you, that he's interceding on your behalf. If you'll stand.